0: Well, every part of the country has different natural disasters that they've got to be prepared for. So if you're on the East Coast, you've got hurricanes, and on the West Coast, you've got earthquakes, and here in Chicago, we've got construction. (laughs) And even though these things can be devastating, if you're from a part of the country where that happens, you sort of get used to it. They're not quite as big of a deal for you. Uh, You take them seriously, but you know how you're going to respond, so you're not too worried about them. And you might not even think about the fact that someone in another part of the world might not know what to do in, say, a a blizzard or a tornado. Well, I have a friend who is a third-grade teacher in the area, in the Chicago area. And one year, partway through the year, she had a student transfer into her class. He had moved with his family from California, and so he had never been in a tornado drill in all of his life. And because he came partway through the year, he missed the one at the beginning of the year. Uh, well, in the spring of that year, unexpectedly, the tornado siren in the school goes off. It was a, a surprise drill, but my friend had not been warned ahead of time about it, so she assumed this is the real thing, and there, there's no time to waste here. Uh, all the kids in the classroom, they knew what to do, so they start filing into the hallway, except for this one kid who's standing there looking around, not sure what, what he's supposed to do. Uh, my friend, in the heat of the moment, forgets that you know, he hasn't been through a, a tornado drill before, so she just uses teacher voice on him, you know, hey, quick, out in the, out in the hallway, You know, he's confused, but he goes out in the hallway. He's looking around, not sure why all these people are doing what they're doing. And she says, get in the corner, put your face on the ground, put your butt in the air, and put this book on your head. Like, what? You, You imagine what this kid is thinking. Like, has my teacher gone crazy? Why is she telling me to do all this weird stuff? But he does it. Gets in the corner, butt in the air, book on the head. Now, of course, later on, my friend realizes he doesn't understand. So she pulls him aside, explained the whole thing to him. But the interesting thing was... The boy obeyed even though he had no idea why it mattered. Sometimes we're like that. We know that God wants us to do something. We might even do that, but we have no idea why it's important. I think that's the case with one of the most important commands in all of Scripture. We are commanded to worship God. Now, most people, they don't think twice about this. Even if you're not religious, you kind of assume that's part of the package, right? You know, If you believe in a God, you're going to worship that God. And if you've been around church for a while, it's so commonplace that you might not even question why we do it. It just seems obvious, you know? But is it? That's the question we're gonna be asking today. I wanna welcome all of you here in St. Charles as well as those in Blackberry Creek and DeKalb and Bartlett and watching online. We're so glad that you're here with us today. We are in a series we're calling Both And. We've been going throughout this entire summer talking about attributes of God that at first glance don't seem like they should go together. They seem incompatible. But as you dig deeper, you find out that they actually go together really, really well. And the reason we're talking about these attributes of God is because we know that what you think about God makes a huge difference in your life. We've been talking about this quote from A.W. Tozer who said, The most important thing about a person is what comes to their mind when they think about God. What you believe deep down about God, it shapes everything about the rest of your life. How you see the world, what you think is important, what you care about, what you do and don't do. Even if you don't think that much about God, even that has a huge impact on how you live. So we've been talking about the attributes of God this summer. And today, the attributes of God we're talking about are God's jealousy and his humility. God is both jealous and humble. Let's start with the jealous side. What do we mean when we say that God is jealous? In a general sense, jealousy is wanting something that someone else has. Uh, So it's that feeling you get when you see that your friend has a Charizard and you're like, I want that. And if you have no idea what a Charizard is, find the nearest millennial or teenager and they'll fill you in, okay? Uh, So if God is jealous, what is it that he wants? What does he see someone else getting and he says, I want that? Well, to answer that question, we're going to turn to a passage in Philippians chapter two. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Uh, Philippians is a little book in the back of the New Testament. Uh, it can be tricky to find. This might be a time for the table of contents. Uh, it's just a few pages long, but don't let the small size fool you. Uh, this is an incredible letter written by the Apostle Paul. It's one of the 13 letters of Paul that we have. Uh, and if you are new to reading the Bible and you've never read something written by Paul uh, and you want to get started, this is probably the best place to start. Uh, it, it's, it's small. It packs a punch. It's full of practical, inspiring wisdom. Uh, it's, it's good stuff. It was written to a little church in the Roman colony of Philippi, which is in modern day Greece. And the section we're looking at today is where Paul is actually quoting a hymn that was popular in Philippi. It's the earliest known worship song that we have from from Christians. Uh, And Paul is quoting it to remind the Philippians what we believe about Jesus. Uh, We talked a little bit about this passage when Heather Zempel was here. Uh, She talked about it through the filter of God's power and his sacrifice. Uh, Today, we're going to look at it through his humility and his jealousy. We're going to start with jealousy in verse 9. Even though it doesn't actually use that word, what's being described here is God's jealousy. Therefore, God exalted him, that is Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. But What's being described here is what happened after Jesus rose from the dead. After he comes back to life, he spends about 40 days teaching his disciples, and then he ascends into heaven, goes back to heaven. And he doesn't just go there to sort of, you know, relax and sort of wait out until the end of the world. He goes there to rule. It says that God exalted him to the highest place. That is, he's got the place of authority. He's got the throne of the universe. And so this hymn is describing what happens as a result of Jesus going to that throne. Uh, At the end of time, every single creature, every single person who has ever lived, you, me, everybody you've ever known, is going to gather around the throne of Jesus. And we are going to bow down and we are going to acknowledge that he is our rightful Lord. Uh, Some of us are going to do that willingly, out of joy. And some are going to do it begrudgingly, out of dread. But this is where history is headed, to the worship service at the end of time. Uh, This is God's goal. It's always been his goal as he's been working from the very beginning. What he wants is to be in the highest place. He wants all eyes on him. He wants the fame and the honor and the praise. This is what God is jealous for. He's jealous for our worship. It's actually a good way to define God's jealousy. Uh, It's his desire for exclusive worship. Because God is jealous, he demands our worship. Look at what it says, or listen to what it says in Exodus chapter 20, okay? This is from the Ten Commandments. Uh, These are the first two commandments, and it's the most famous place where God is described as jealous. It says this, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God is saying, your worship? I get that. I'm not going to tolerate any rivals. You you don't bow down to anyone but me. That is it. That's all. If you go on like Bible Gateway or use a, a Bible app and you search for the word jealous in the Bible, you find all the places where it describes God. What you will find is every single time it is describing God's desire that we worship him and not idols. God is jealous for our worship. Now, when I use that word worship, you've got to understand, it means more than just the music time that we do on a, a weekend service like this. Uh, oftentimes, we'll use the word worship to sort of be a shorthand way of talking about what we just did, where we, we sing songs to God. Uh, and that, that makes sense because saying worship is a lot less cumbersome than the time when we express our worship through corporate singing of praise songs or something weird like that. And, and the Bible often will use the word worship to talk about singing like that. So it's okay that we use that. But it's really important for us as we're reading the Bible to realize that when it talks about worship, it's talking about something bigger, something more. It's a description of a heart attitude that can get expressed in all sorts of different ways. This is what worship is. Worship is when you take someone or something and you put it in the highest place in your heart. It means that you make them the center of your attention. You fixate on them, you dwell on them, you delight in them, you admire them. You say, look, isn't that amazing? Isn't that, what could be better than that? That's incredible. Uh, That's what worship is. It's that attitude of your heart. And that sometimes comes out in songs and words, but it comes out in other ways as well. Uh, When you worship something, your whole life starts to get oriented around it. The the, the vector of your heart points at it. And so everything sort of comes in lines with that. Your your actions, your lifestyle, uh, your your thoughts and your attitudes. Uh, That's why in another place, Paul talks about worship as offering our bodies, offering our whole selves as living sacrifices. That is our true and proper worship. Uh, what you worship shapes everything about your life. And, and so that's what God is jealous for, our, our worship. He wants uh, the first place in our life. And when he sees us giving praise to something else, he says, I want that. When he sees us giving our heart to something else, he says, I want that. I want your heart. And this is one of the, the, the major themes in the Bible. It comes up over and over again. Sometimes when I'm reading the Bible, something that I do to help me figure it out is I try to channel my inner three-year-old, okay? So I play the why game. I see God doing something and I say, Why? 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 And I ask that question until I get back to the ultimate reason why God is doing what he's doing. Now, sometimes the Bible doesn't explain why God does what he does. It just says that he did it. But when it does explain why God is doing what he does, it pretty much always comes back to this reason. God does what he does for his own glory. Another way of putting it is that he would be praised, that his name would be exalted above all. Let me give you a few examples of this. I'm going to do this real quick, kind of rapid fire, uh, because there's a ton of verses, and I'm not trying to explain all of them. I'm just trying to give give you the impression of how prevalent this theme is. So if you want to write down the references and look them up later, you can do that. But let's play the why game here. Okay? So why did God choose the people of Israel to be His people? Uh, Jeremiah says this: "I bound all the people of Israel and all the people of Judah to Me," declares the Lord, "to be My people." For my renown and praise and honor. Why, when they were slaves in Egypt, did God rescue the people of Israel? This is what Psalm says. When our ancestors were in Egypt, they rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet God saved them for his name's sake to make his mighty power known. Why, when we put our faith in Jesus, does God adopt us as his children? Ephesians says this, In love, God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Why does God give us the Holy Spirit when we come to faith in him? Ephesians again says, When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance to the praise of his glory. Why, when you pray, does God answer your prayer? This is, this is what Jesus said in John. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Why does God call us to do good works? Matthew says this, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Why doesn't God reject us as his people no matter what we do? First Samuel says this, for the sake of his great name, for his praise, for his glory, the Lord will not reject his people. Now, I, I realize that's a barrage of verses. It's probably overwhelming to keep up with all those things, but that's kind of the point. The theme is everywhere. Now, I've got a list of verses on my computer that's at least 100 verses long that, that point at this. God's ultimate goal in all that he does is his own glory. That, that's what he wants. He wants to be elevated and honored and praised above everything else. He, he wants everything in all of creation to orbit around him. He wants everything in your life to orbit around him. The first commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength, everything. God wants to be your obsession, your delight, your highest priority in life. He refuses to share that with anybody else. Our God is a jealous God and he demands our worship. Okay, time out, okay? This is weird, isn't it? Like, it's, it's kind of strange to think of God saying, worship me, worship me. Uh, he comes across a, a, a little undesirable like that. This is actually a deal breaker for a lot of people. Uh, it's actually one of the reasons why Brad Pitt left his childhood faith. He, he grew up going to church, uh, but now he's an atheist. And in an interview, he explained this. So let me read to you what he said. And, and I'm sure as I read this, it won't be hard for you to imagine Brad Pitt saying it since we look so much alike, you know. <laughs> this is what he said. Religion works, it works because it's comforting. I grew up believing in it and it worked for me in whatever my little personal high school crisis was, but it didn't last for me. I didn't understand this idea of a God who says, you have to acknowledge me. You have to say that I'm the best and then I'll give you eternal happiness. And if you won't, well, then you don't get it. It didn't seem, it seemed to me about ego. I can't see God operating from ego. So it made no sense to me. It's got a good point, doesn't he? I kind of get it. You know, it's like that guy who's always trying to be the life of the party. You know, he's, he's making himself the center of attention and bragging about his accomplishments and, and fishing for compliments and kind of buttoning into other people's pictures. You know, he's got to be, no, nobody likes that guy, do they? I, I don't know. Have any of you seen um, uh, any of the races that Michael Phelps won this week? Okay. Guy's incredible, right? Just amazing, like super intimidating when he, whenever he does the thing, like his wingspan, you know? I'm like, what the heck? You know, one of his arms is like longer than one of the gymnasts, you know? It's just wild. <laughs> totally amazing, super impressive. Um, and, but did you see after the, one of the races where he broke the record for the most gold medals ever won in the Olympics, okay? Uh, he wins this race, it's incredible. And then as he comes out of the water, he looks to the crowd and he goes like this. You look at that and you think, dude, okay, you totally deserve the applause. Like, this is a moment to savor. I totally get that. But millions of people, millions of people around the world are cheering for you right now, and you feel the need to egg the crowd on because they're not chanting your name loud enough? Is that what God is doing? Because it kind of comes across as insecure or needy or like you're just trying too hard, you know? How is requiring worship... Not arrogant or insecure on God's part. How, how is it a loving thing to do? Is it really okay for God to be jealous? Let's look back at Philippians chapter 2 to figure this out, okay? Uh, let's look at, at verse 9, okay? I, I want you to look and say, what is the first word of verse 9? Go ahead and shout it out, all four campuses. What's the first word? Therefore, okay. Now, there's an old saying when you're studying the Bible. When you come across a therefore. Ask what it's there for, okay? Uh, and so here's what you do. Uh, when you see a therefore, you, you ask the why question, okay? Because whatever you're about to read, what came right before it is the explanation. It's the reason for why it happened. So you say, why, in this case, did God exalt Jesus to the highest place, okay? And so you read what comes right before. Why is Jesus worthy of the highest place? Let's start reading in verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. You can put it like this, because God is jealous, he demands our worship, but because God is humble, he deserves our worship. Let's dig a little bit deeper into these verses. Let me show you three things from here, from this passage, that will show you why God's jealousy is neither arrogant nor insecure, and and it's not unloving. The, The first thing I want you to see is this, Jesus can be humble because he's not needy. Jesus can be humble because he's not needy. Look again at verse 6, okay? Look what it says about Jesus. It says, He was in very nature God, and He was equal to God. He had equality with God. Now, I realize this is like Christianity 101, but it's important to say this Jesus is God, like really, really God, okay? And what that means is that there really isn't anything better than Him. You know why it's wrong for me to act like I'm the center of the universe? Because I'm not but he is. You know why it's wrong for you to act like you're God's gift to humanity? Because you're not. But Jesus is. That is why God is the one being who is allowed to be self-centered. In fact, it would be kind of weird if he didn't think he was the best. If it seems odd to you that he would do that, ask yourself, who else should God put first? Like, who's God going to look at and say, oh yeah, uh, him or her or that thing, yeah, they're better than me. They're superior, they're they're smarter, they're stronger, they're more holy, more just, they're they're more compassionate, they're more loving, they're more kind. Yeah, they are more praiseworthy than me. I mean, the the basic reason why it's okay for God to value himself above everything else is because he actually is more valuable than all things. And God is not just the best in the category, he's actually the definition of the category. He is not simply good, he is goodness. He is not simply beautiful, he is beauty. He's not simply perfect, he's perfection. He is wisdom, he is justice, he is love. He's the standard and the source of all of these things. There there simply is not anyone or anything more worthy than Jesus. And Jesus knows it. And knowing that makes Jesus humble. Now that's probably counterintuitive, sounds a little strange, but think about it for a little while and it'll make sense, okay? Look look at verse 7. This is what Jesus did. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. But ask yourself, why would someone do that? Okay? I was thinking about it, and I can only think of a few different reasons why you'd, you'd, you'd make yourself a servant like that. It could be that someone forced you into it. It was involuntary. You've, you've become a slave, and, and someone's forcing you to serve. But that really isn't the case with Jesus. He's clearly doing this willingly. Another reason you might do it is you might make yourself nothing because you actually think that you're nothing. You know, you, I'm, I'm not worthy. I'm not, I'm not anything important. So I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm lower, so I'm going to lower myself, you know. But you look at the life of Jesus, and he doesn't seem insecure. He doesn't look like a guy who's riddled with self-doubt. He is bold. He is confident. He knows who he is. So this doesn't look like a case of insecurity. What I think is it's actually the exact opposite. That you might humble yourself because you are so secure that humility doesn't threaten you. You are so confident that it doesn't feel risky to loosen your grip on your privileges and your position. I think that's what's going on with Jesus. Look again at verse 6. It says, He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. If you look at another translation of this verse, if you use a Bible app and you check out another translation, you'll often see that the translations say something like this. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to cling to, something to clench your fists around, something to hold on to with white knuckles, because if you loosen up, you might lose it. Now, Jesus is so secure about his position as the Son of God that he's not worried about lowering himself. He's he's not needy. He doesn't need anything. This is one of the things the Bible is really clear about. God doesn't need us. Look at what it says in Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives life and breath and everything else. What's being said here is the exact opposite of how people in the ancient world thought about their gods. They assumed that their gods needed things, and that's why humans existed. We were kind of slave labor for the gods, and so it was our job to bring the gods everything they needed, food and money and compliments. We were going to take care of our gods so our gods could take care of us. That was the mindset. But according to the Bible, it's the exact opposite of the way the real God works. God is not served by human hands as if he were in need. Instead, he's the one who gives life and breath and everything to all of us. This is why Jesus can lower himself and become a servant because he's got everything that he needs and he's not worried about himself. The, the person who's got the death grip on their rights and privileges, that's an insecure person. You, you know people like this. You know, it's, it's the boss who's uh, always taking credit for their employees' successes because it makes him look good or railing on them for their failures because he's afraid that's going to make him look bad. It's, it's the ball hog. It's the hot shot on the court who's afraid to set up her teammates because they might outshine her. It's the the husband who nitpicks his wife's appearance and behaviors because he really needs her to impress his friends. That's insecurity. People like that can never humble themselves because it's too risky for them. They're afraid they're going to lose what they've got. But not Jesus. Because God, he's got everything that he needs, and so it doesn't threaten him. You've got nothing that he needs, not even your worship. Now hear that. That's important. God does not need your praise. He does not need your worship. Now, you might be thinking, like, wait, wait, hang on a second. You just spent the first half of the sermon uh, proving to us that God requires and demands our worship. Why would God be jealous for our worship if he doesn't need it? Very good question. And this is where the second thing I want you to see comes in, okay? Second thing is this. Worship brings us into the life of the Trinity. Worship brings us into the life of the Trinity. Now, this might not be obvious, so let me unpack it for you. Uh, look at verse 9 here again. Okay, according to this verse, who exalted Jesus? Go ahead and call it out. Who exalted Jesus? God exalted him, okay? That is a reference to God the Father. God the Father exalts the Son. The Son doesn't exalt himself, the Father does it. Now this is important, because if you're reading through the Bible and you read through the Old Testament and you see all of these verses about God glorifying himself and lifting himself up, you get one picture. But as we come to the New Testament, we get a, a, a more nuanced image of what's going on. Because we find out in the New Testament that God is the Trinity. God is one God and three persons. And as we see those three persons interact, it becomes a little bit simplistic to simply say that God exalts himself. But specifically what's happening is that each member of the Trinity is exalting the others. So we end up reading things like this. In Jesus's prayer in John 17, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. He goes on to say, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. In other places, you've got examples of the Spirit exalting Jesus or exalting the Father and so on. And so God's jealousy is not simply self-promotion. It's each member of the Trinity saying, look, look at the other ones. I adore them and I want you to adore them too. So the father knows that the most pleasurable experience in his life is beholding Jesus, and he wants to share that with us. And the spirit knows that lifting up Jesus brings him more happiness than anything else. And the son knows that glorifying the father is his greatest joy. For all eternity, God has been this perpetual worship service, this community of mutual glorification. And that's why God doesn't need our worship. He's got all the worship he needs. The son is not thinking, you know, I've got the unending praise of the Father and the Spirit, but I really could use a little bit more. He's not doing that. He's satisfied. No, the reason God commands us to worship him is because he wants to share with us the most enjoyable, satisfying experience that anyone can have. When we worship, we're participating in the life of God, which is the very best thing that could happen to anybody. God's jealousy is not selfish. He's not requiring worship for his sake. He's requiring worship for our sake. It's him saying, I refuse to let my people settle for anything less than the highest possible joy. It's him opening up the doors to the party and saying, come on in, you've got to experience this. Worship brings us into the life of the Trinity. Let me show you just one more thing from this passage uh, of why God's jealousy is actually a good thing for us. It's this, exalting Jesus puts self-giving love at the center of everything. Now, think about how subversive it is for God to exalt Jesus to the highest place. Think about what it means. It means that God was thinking, okay, what am I gonna put at the pinnacle of all of reality? What am I gonna make as the standard so that everybody can point to that and say, this is what's admirable, this is what's praiseworthy. What, when, the closer you get to this, the greater you are. What are you gonna put in that spot? And God decides he's gonna put the guy who, verse seven, made himself nothing, took the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself, and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. When God says, this is it, this is greatness, he points to the guy who poured out his life for the sake of other people. Here's what this means. It means nothing is more glorious than humility. Nothing is more glorious than humility. Say that with me. Nothing is more glorious than humility. By exalting Jesus, God has placed self-giving love at the center of everything. All of us have a highest place in our life, something that we, we exalt above everything else, something we find desirable and admirable that we pursue. Uh, think about what that might be for you. For, for some people, it's comfort. You know, this is the, this is the good life for us. You know, uh, we've got the stuff that we want. We're not too stressed out. We get to do fun things. That's, that's the highest place. Uh, for some people, it's, it's success, you know, I, 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 I advance in my career, I, I pile up a list of accomplishments, I do something with my life, that's, that's the highest thing. For other people, it's, it's being in control of your own life, you know? You want financial security, you want freedom to do what you want to do, you, you, you don't want to be too answerable to the opinions of others. Uh, for some people, it's just wanting to be liked, you know? You, you want to please the people around you, your friends and your family, uh, you want to be admired and respected. What is it that's in the first place in your life? When, When God exalts Jesus to the highest place, he says, whatever it is that you think you're pursuing that seems like the best thing to you, let me tell you this, the very best thing you can pursue is humility. Humility. That's the most glorious thing there is. And it's actually really, really good news that God does this. Because think about this. What happens if you put those other things first in your life? Just imagine a person who says, my highest priority in life is my own comfort. Do you want to be friends with that person? What's it like to relate to them? Or the person who says, the the thing I'm pursuing above all else is my own accomplishments and my own success. You want to work with someone like that? You want to be married to someone like that? You you want to be raised by someone like that? Or or people who, who, who want to be in control, that's their priority in life. Or people who just are people pleasers, and that's all they want to do is be liked. What does that do to their relationships? What does it do to their heart? But then imagine what happens if you put humble, self-giving love, if you put Jesus Christ as the first place in your life saying, this is the good life, what kind of person do you become? Uh, last week we had a, a guest speaker, Ed Stetzer. Wasn't, wasn't Ed great? That was really good. I, I really appreciated having him here. Uh, it, it was good. All of our speakers this summer have been really enjoyable for me. Uh, well, last week I was uh, backstage and I was talking with Ed after one of the services and we were kind of reviewing things that had happened. And at the end of the conversation he says, Clayton, this has been great. I love this church. It's so good to be here. I just have one question. Does everyone at your church have a shaved head? Okay, so if you've looked at the staff photos on our website, you might begin to wonder if we've got some sort of dress code requirement or something, and I haven't been here long enough to catch up with the program, you know, Um, but maybe it's just because we've got a a bald senior pastor, and so we notice, you know, the, the shaved heads more. Or maybe Jim sort of attracts people with shaved heads, you know? They, they say that you have a connection with people that you look like. It's sort of a, a subconscious thing. And so maybe people who, who are bald or have shaved heads, they, they, they show up and they say, oh, I feel at home here. I feel like I belong. Uh, actually, to support that theory, uh, we've noticed an uptick in people uh, attending since I started who look a lot like Brad Pitt. So, you know. <laughs> um, Or maybe Jim doesn't attract shaved heads. Maybe he inspires them. Uh, and maybe it's, you know, I don't know if people are looking at Jim saying, I want to be just like him. I'm going to copy him. Um, but, but maybe when you see something often enough, someone in a prominent position again and again over time, the things that they do and say, they feel natural. And so, uh, you know, maybe a certain hairdo is associated with someone you respect and, and pay attention to regularly. And so more and more people take that on. Or maybe not. I have no idea why we have so many bald people on staff. But it is true that if you see someone doing something again and again, It starts to rub off on you. And the more prominent they are, the more important or respected they are, the more you admire that person, the more you're going to end up imitating them, sometimes without even realizing it. Uh, That's why what we put, who we put in the highest place in our life matters so much. That quote from A.W. Tozer that I mentioned before, the way he finishes it up is he says this, We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Over time, you become like what you worship. And everybody's going to worship something. And so when God is jealous, he says, you've got to worship me. It's a way of him saying, you've got to have self-giving love at the center of everything in your life. It's actually God's way of protecting us by being shaped by something less than his own love. Think about this. What would it look like in your life? What would it look like in a person's life if the humble self-giving love was their highest priority? How would it change how they used money. If they were obsessed with the guy who didn't cling to his rights and privileges but let them go, what, what would it look like? How would it change how they treated their family? What would it be like to be married to someone who is obsessed with that? To, to be raised by someone, to be a sibling to someone who is pursuing humble, self-giving love? How would it change their relationships with their coworkers and their classmates and their, their neighbors? What would our church look like? If every single one of us was obsessed with pursuing the self-giving love of Jesus, how would that change how we related to each other, how people felt when they were welcomed, how people felt when they were in need in our church? What would the community say if, if, if all the people that were at Christ Community Church were just obsessed with the self-giving love of Jesus and said, we're pursuing that, how would it change things outside our doors? Sometimes people ask why it is so important. For us to be a part of regular weekend services like what we're doing right now. Why why is it that I'm supposed to be here, you know, pretty much every week, you know? And if I I skip sometimes, is it really that big of a deal, you know? If I I miss three or four weeks, I'll, I'll come back. I still believe. I still care about Jesus. So why is this important, you know? It's a good question. When you were a kid, did you uh, ever do uh, a science experiment where you made a homemade compass? Okay. I, I don't remember if I did this with my dad or with a teacher or something, but we made this homemade compass, and uh, what we did was we took a, a sewing needle or maybe a nail or something, and, and that was kind of the pointer for the compass, and we floated it on a piece of cork in a bowl of water, and it kind of could rotate so that it could point to, to north or, 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 you know, whatever. Um, north. Compasses always point north, right? Yeah, okay, I know this. Um, but the way we got the, the needle magnetized was this. We took a bigger, stronger magnet, and we rubbed it against the needle. And, and as we rubbed it against the needle, the, the, the magnetic molecules in the needle got lined up to north. And so that way, it, it would point the right direction. But the thing was, it, it didn't just work to rub the needle one time. You had to rub the needle again and again and again and again, 50, 100 times, before it would point towards true north. And then if you drop the needle or you hit it really hard, those, those molecules would get out of alignment, and you had to do it again. This is what worship services are for. It's just 75 minutes in your week. So you say, well, you know, the, the rest of my life, I'm going to love God and, and serve him there. What, what's the point of this 75 minutes? It's, it's one of those times of the magnet rubbing you, of getting the, the molecules of your heart lined up to the true north of Jesus, saying this is what we're pursuing, this is what we're going after. The, the one who gave himself for us, that, that is what we're pointed at. And so this is why it's so important that we engage in worship like we do here. It's the reason why you should make it a priority to be here on a regular basis. It's the reason why you should make it a priority to be here on time, uh, to be here for the beginning when we, we sing these songs and we're, we're getting our hearts lined up with things. It's it's not just a a sort of a warm-up for the sermon. It's actually part of the practice of of adoring and praising Jesus. And it's also the reason why when we sing, you you should do everything you can to be engaged. To say, I'm going to think about the words and and, and ponder them. I'm going to sing with my whole heart, even if I'm not feeling it right now. I'm going to get my body involved in doing this. Because this is part of the way that we say, "Let, let us exalt and lift up Jesus so our lives are oriented towards him. We are so prone to be self-centered, to be self-serving people. And the only way for us to be self-giving, humble people is to come again and again to Jesus, the one who gave himself for us. That's what we're going to do now with this final song. We're going to take our offering, we're going to sing to God, and I would encourage you, engage with all of your heart with the one who is both jealous and humble. Let's pray. God, we lift you up. We give you honor and praise because you are worthy above all things. You are the one who is great. You are the one who is good. You are the one who is love. And so we lift you high. And Jesus, we we praise you for being the one who gave your life to save us, who poured out everything, who became nothing so that the world might be healed. Jesus, we lift you high and we worship you. And Spirit, we ask that you would move in us now. Give us hearts to sing and to give and to praise you, the God, three in one, who loves us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.